Welcome to Between Two Chairs, Demystifying Commercial Real Estate, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and trends on the South Florida commercial real estate market with your hosts, Fernando Arencibia Jr. and Jennifer Wollman. In each episode, we dive into the world of commercial real estate and break down complex concepts to make them accessible for everyone. Whether you're a real estate professional, a curious investor, or just interested in the South Florida market in general, Between Two Chairs is the podcast for you. So pull up a chair and join us. Great, great to start with a smile. Just wanted to welcome everybody to another episode of Between Two Chairs. We have a very, very special show and an incredibly special guest, special to us and I think to definitely to our industry here in South Florida. He is probably one of the oldest living members with a CCIM license. He always tells me, I think he's number four or number five. <laughs> uh, he has a long career in commercial real estate in South Florida, not only as a real estate broker, but more significantly as an industrial developer. And I will say, before announcing his, uh, you know, his ne next endeavor in our industry, that one of the great things about this gentleman is that he's always an amazing help to everyone in the industry. He's always available for a consult. He's always available to help out and, and provide guidance and share his experience. And that's one of the many reasons why he is going to be the 2024 chairman of the board for the Miami Association of Realtors. So without further ado, our friend, our colleague, Mr. Goss Fonte. Thank you, good afternoon. Jennifer Fernando. It's always a pleasure to hear uh, Fernando expound wisdom and bluster. <laughs> I'm bluster. He, he wanted to call it BS, but he, he, he helped I, I himself. I did tell out. him there was a PG rating yeah. on the show. It was a PG rating. <laughs> <laughs> I did forget to say he is also an amazing Italian wine connoisseur. Yes. Only, but I think it's only one, one area of Italy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm expanding. <laughs> There's regions. There's regions. So, Gus, tell us a little bit about yourself, how AJF Properties came about. Just dive in to how you all got started. So, uh, 37 years in commercial, in real estate, of which probably 36 and a half in commercial. AJF Properties is just a iteration of a brokerage so that I could just have my own brokerage. I had had some companies with partners in the past and I decided that that wasn't gonna happen anymore. So I think AJF, the entity has been around for 20 some years, but you know, m me, I'm 37. Had a CCIM since 1989. And yes, it's in the 4,000s. I think uh, there's, <laughs> um, Ken Rosen is the only one I think beats me. Because <laughs> Ken is, 102 now, I think. Wow. No, I'm kidding. So, <laughs> well, I'm <thinking laughs> um, I actually got an email from him this morning. Yeah, exactly. I've done just about everything in terms of real estate. I got started in the business while I was in college because we bought an apartment building by Little Havana or by the Orange Bowl in Little Havana to park our cars. And subsequent to that, we sold it, made good money. And when I finished school and I wanted to figure out what to do, the only thing else I had ever done that would produce 
any type of a living was real estate owning that building because like going on on Saturday nights did not, that wouldn't produce any income that was negative. So went, took my real estate class with um, CB, with Caldwell Banker, Joe Clock. Wow. wow. And got to it. Yeah. And I think he's now passed away. So you did what? Six months of residential? <laughs> I did uh, uh, six months of residential. Yeah. And it didn't, it did not fit my personality. Um, the color of the kitchen, the floor, and it just it just didn't work. I actually built, um, we built a 23 home, single family home development in, I don't know what it's called now. It used to be Color Ridge. I don't know if it's Color Bay or whatever. It's um, off of the turnpike. And I, I didn't have the patience or tolerance for that. So went back into what I knew, which was apartment buildings and migrated years later into warehouses and that's it. Warehouses are the easiest to, to deal with. Do you remember how how you put that first deal together, the the apartment building in Little Havana? Oh, absolutely. I, I bought it from Luis Zamora. I can drive you to his house right now if you wanted to. <laughs> um, he's probably no longer with us. He had a little Home Depot for sale sign on the building. We walked by on our way to a football game and we said, Jesus has a parking lot. We called him. He said, if you give me $10,000, I'll finance the other 40. He sold it to us for 50. It was a four unit, two story building with a garage in the back, which we of course converted to an efficiency. And there is a story about the efficiency, which I cannot do on any type of recorded. Uh, <laughs> no, no, we'll do, we'll, we'll do that over a glass of wine yes. in private. Um, but be, be careful what you say, because we don't know how to edit. Yeah. So <laughs> That was the first one. We bought it. We renovated it, did the windows, the floor, the plumbing, fixed everything up, rented it, and then sold it a few years later to somebody for $90,000. So, you know, we when you're in college, you know, that 30 grand is crazy. A lot of Saturday nights out. A lot of Saturday nights. We spent probably <laughs> $10,000 in materials and, you know, did all the work ourselves. I, actually, the roof on the building was done on a Saturday as a fraternity. Um, shouldn't I say hazing? Initiation. No. <laughs> Initiation. A pledge, a pledge project. I, I invited <laughs> all the pledges onto the roof to um, spread the, the ceiling. <laughs> So, all that, all that cost it. was beer. I love it. I love aye, it. Aye, aye. Talk about a painting party, the roof party. <laughs> well, plus you 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 know so much about Miami. You're a native, so you've been here thirty years, forever. So so that's how he goes up, and he right. he really does know everybody but, in the history. <laughs> but what I really want to know when you bought the building was it really. As the, for the investment, or you just wanted to have great parking in front of Orange Bowl? We wanted to have the parking <laughs> to be able to fit cars because we would get everybody to come park. We could fit like 12 cars inside it and tailgate in the front and then walk over. Um, we didn't really understand. I mean, my, my partner that I bought it with um, is Sergio Concepcion, and his dad was for a long time president of Ocean Bank, Pepe Concepcion. So he you know, used to manage a lot of apartment buildings for the Venezuelans that own the bank. And they talked to us about it when we were kids. Of course, we didn't really pay much attention, but we talked to him about it. He said, oh, yeah, if that guy's going to finance it, you know, go ahead and buy it because, it, you know, it's it's a good deal in apartments. And he wanted to push us into real estate and away from just Saturday nights. And it worked. Yeah. 
still did the Saturday nights for a lot of years after, but we started, uh, we started working. So that was, I started, I think I was 24, 25 years old when I got my license. And so considered my age now, that's, I was relatively young at that point and it, fresh and I wanted to learn. So that's how, why I got into, you know, CCIM classes and so forth. So as we're going through kind of your origin story, how, how did you transition into your preferred asset class, which is industrial? I met my business partner president, which is Rene Vivo during a transaction, the famous Canatilla Cubana on 49th street and Hialeah next to Gus Machado. Um, he was putting it for sale and I was representing a company out of Columbia, Missouri, Storage Mart that was looking for locations and he had the listing and they wanted something in Hialeah. So we worked a deal on that. During that deal, we had to create only in Hialeah, create a zoning that didn't exist and then zone this property to that zoning that didn't exist. So Renee and I did probably 10 or 12 zoning hearings and, and commission hearings. And we kind of bonded over that. And he did strictly industrial from his whole entire career. And we used to talk a lot about it. And one thing led to another and we bought our first site to do a development in Hialeah. Never did it, flipped it, made a million dollars. And I was like, okay. And then we actually bought our second one in Doral from Ernesto Campbell, gotta thank him. And we did our first industrial development, 68 unit, 120,000 square foot, um, multi-bay condo warehouse, street level, without knowing a thing about developing. Like, the only thing I had ever built was the renovation on the little, on the apartment in Little Havana. So went in there blind and great market floats all your mistakes away. <laughs> So you, it, it, it's like that thing in sports that winning, you know, fixes everything. So let, let, let me ask you this as a, you know, you're both a developer and an investor of industrial property. What is, what is it that you really like about that asset class but from those two perspectives? So it's, I had a, um, a daughter of a friend of mine yesterday who w was shadowing me, poor thing. Um, she's a real estate finance major from Florida State University, which, you know, whatever. Poor thing. <laughs> and I, she asked me why I like industrial. So if I have a 10,000 square foot warehouse, typically that'll have 10% office, a thousand square foot office. If my tenant leaves, I can have them drop off a roll off dumpster on a Friday, go to Home Depot, find three workers on a Saturday, paint the thousand square foot office, throw anything that's in the warehouse left into that dumpster, Monday have it picked up and be ready to lease the space out. If I have a 10,000 square foot um, office um, and my tenant moves out, more likely than not, you're gonna have to paint the entire office, which is 10,000 square feet, put new carpeting, try and find that one tenant that likes that build out that particular way and or have to expend dollars in doing tenant improvements. That alone is much easier. Apartments, the, the thing I don't particularly like about owning multifamily is that the plumbing and electrical and roof always leak a Friday at 4.30 in the afternoon, whereas a warehouse, they are typically closed all weekend long. So if it leaks on Friday, you tell them we'll deal with it on Monday. In residential, you have to be much more attentive. So it's a combination of uh, convenience and laziness, why I do industrial. 
And, and as a developer, how do you, you've done it for such a long time. So what, what do you like that as a developer uh, to develop industrial? So I, I can't take ownership of this, but because Mr. Ed Easton, who is a titan in our, in our business, told me the reason he likes industrial is you're building side and one story. If the economy goes bad, you drop a wall and you wait. If you're doing a vertical building, you, you, once you start, you have to finish or abandon the project. But also it's the, you know, and it's a function of having done it for so long that I consider it easy in terms of designing because you have a piece of land, you know, that's 40, 40 something percent is what you're going to get as lot coverage. So you can pretty much pencil draw what you're going to do there. If you understand the market, you know, whether you need street level, dock high, how tall your ceilings are and where you're going to go and what your likely tenants are with office buildings who knows who's going to move in or, or what and it's the same thing with residential it's just you know not my preferred warehouses are much much easier to visualize spec design and build you can put up a 50 60,000 square foot warehouse in six months from the day you break ground so it's interesting that you went from multifamily to industrial. Um, I follow this guy on Twitter named Commercial Real Estate Max, and he's a warehouse guy. And he wrote something that he thinks that there's a stigma that the reason so many people invest in multifamily versus industrial is because there's a stigma associated with the word industrial. It just doesn't sound as sexy. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I'm the one who started that rumor to keep people away from industrial. So I just want to um, let you know that. The big money, now you're talking the multi-billion dollar REITs and investors all understand industrial is the, the class to be in. And we're seeing everybody in our market here where 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Hialeah was a local investor market. It's now become institutional. Anything that's over... 30,000, 40,000 square feet, you can sell to an institution. Um, I agree that it isn't the sexiest. Um, I did a, a call this morning with my partners for a project that we're developing, which is a 110,000 square foot freezer building. And they want like these sexy colors and blue and, and like an ocean and all this stuff. And I said during go, the tenant that comes could give nothing. They don't care. They want functionality, um, but you have to do it. But that's them fighting the stigma because when they go out to raise public money, they like to show the pretty picture and make it sexier compared to the guy that's selling the office. To me, it's it's a box. If I can visualize the, the renter, the tenant or, or what, you figure out what they need and you make you can spend some money in the entrance to the office or making the warehouse more functional. So let me let me ask you about some of the transitions we're seeing in industrial, especially in areas like Hialeah and Wynwood, where that used to be where you'd go to get your car serviced, you'd go get the canvas for your boat fixed. <laughs> um, and now those places have become way more retail oriented. Um, the, the warehouse space has become more retail oriented. I know a lot of that is happening in Hialeah too, since they did some of the residential upzoning um, along the transit corridor. Tell us a little bit about that, how you think that's going to affect the overall market, especially for the smaller mom and pop users of the small bays. So Hialeah, from a planning standpoint, is trying to get away 
from the old mom and pop mechanics. If you have uh, one of those licenses and you close the business, they're not gonna let another business that, with that license occupy. They're cleaning up. They've also, like many other cities, realized that a, a single story um, development or older building is capped on, on what they're gonna produce in real estate taxes and income for the city on that part. So that's kind of the, the first push to develop or, or rezone or change the the transit corridors and some other corridors that are kind of the names are made up, but primarily on the main on the main streets. I have property off of 26th in Hialeah and 10th, which 26 for Americans is Northwest 79th Street. But when you cross over, it becomes 26th or 25th, I'm sorry, because 26 is where my property is. So right around me, the two blocks, um, it's a, a company, a Coral Gables company. I'm, I'll remember their name. They're, all the information is on my desk, but I can't reach it. Um, they're doing a $150 million project directly around me. So now you talk about how you change the uses of warehouse. I have a warehouse that has an auto body mechanic disaster mess tenant. Next door, I have another guy who buys and sells cars. So it's a 4,500 square feet each, and that's the use. And then I have a 500 square foot cafeteria. When I end up with a thousand units built up around me within, you know, one, half a block to a block maximum, that's going to change the, the preferred use for me for, for that warehouse going forward. So that's a mom and pop business or whatever that will be displaced i don't know where where they'll go that's one of the effects of the upzoning the other crazy upzoning and i've been reading researching listening we did a, a talk yesterday with miami-dade county and about it is the live local act and if it was on your list of questions i'm going to get do it now so the live local act since it supersedes the zoning in individual municipalities it is going to be pretty crazy how it rolls out. I think there's a lot of people that have properties that fit into the zoning or fit into the category that that could benefit from that, but really won't because they're much smaller in, in size and still it gets very expensive. But a concrete example, that land where I said we're building the 110,000 square foot freezer facility, that is in Miami-Dade County proper. It's on 27th Avenue in what I would call Alapata. That's six and a half acres. And now under this Live Local Act allows you 250 units per acre with an unlimited height. So that greatly changes the valuation and the, the thought process and vision when you have that. And I think that's one of the things that's gonna happen in the corridors in Hialeah and the corridors in city of Miami and some areas where you're going to be able to build, you have to do a minimum of 50 units, but you're going to have, you're going to be able to build um, some additional, which hopefully will will help housing. But circumventing or going all the way back to what you said in, about the the small mom and pop and the the those guys, I don't know where they're going to end up all going because. They, they're, they've kind of been kicked out of Winwood. They're still in Alapata, but Alapata's gotten so expensive that they ended up in that East Hialeah, Brownsville area, but nobody really wants them because it's that's a dirtier business. I love them. 
as tenants because again once they're in as long as you can control their pollution discharge they they can't go anywhere well that's part of the issue right because it it Hialeah is not the only one that is almost uh, attacking this you know segment of that of that tenancy we see it all around the county and so the question is you know where where are the mechanics going to go and you're right at, at some point once they're in one place you know they're going to stick around for a long time but what what is going to happen i know john dom always shout out to john dom he's always talking about this issue of you know where we're going to get our cars fixed and where are the tractor trailers going to park uh because that's another area you know right now there's two gigantic projects for tractor trailer storage that are being proposed off of 8th street and 137th combined it's close to 100 acres they're two really really big projects so i think that area where it's agricultural land but can be used for that that will that'll go a long way in solving it because that's a very strategic location um everybody talked and and they were talking about doing these facilities up in central florida and moving you know these inland ports to kind of solve that and and but convenience is convenience that's the situation with that where the, the these mechanics gonna go it's tough because as a landlord you can only i can only raise my rent to them to a certain point before they can no longer afford it and so the seesaw is when an alternate use is going to pay you more and it's a cleaner use i mean jennifer and you guys and you both are you're aware of all that area between 72nd and the palmetto between bird and miller there was a bunch of auto places in there and they're all getting displaced because the rents in that market have gone so incredibly high even if you move everybody out and you say let's get them out and put them in as far west away from everybody there's no land out there because medley and hialeah gardens are are pretty much developed all the way to urban development boundary so where are they going to go maybe all of them the homestead where nobody you know where nobody else wants to go gus how many how many square feet of industrial have you developed and managed over your career Jesus Christ, I don't, I don't know. If it, he it, told it, you not to ask numbers. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. My, my bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's several, several million square feet. The reason why I ask is because you have, um, I, I think that this has forced you to become very proficient with zoning, but you also have uh, done a lot of deals with institutional uh, buyers. You know, a lot of our, the, the majority of, you know, commercial brokers in South Florida do smaller type deals. You know, give us a little insight. What is it like to work with an institutional investor uh, with a REIT and to, to work a deal out with them? So first of all, to do that, you have to be able to really hold your liquor because it, the REITs all send their junior 20, late 20 year old guys down to South Florida to do all their scouting. And these guys wanna see, they wanna do all their showings by 2.30, 3 o'clock be done, go back to the hotel, shower and go out partying. They send the young guys. The other part is it's very, it's very cold cut, very numeric in, in how they look at, at items. The first deal that I did what I, was institutional I, we had bought in Miami Lakes from Ed Easton a 260,000 square foot industrial little park. They were 40,000 square foot buildings and then a 10,000 square foot office building in the front. We, we bought it with the idea of tearing it down and, and redeveloping the entire site. Then the economy tanked in 06 and we retrenched, leased out the entire project 
and we owed very little because we had bought it as a redevelopment, so it was almost land value, and the, the prices had just started going up, so we decided to sell it and take that money that we had in there parked and use it for other stuff, like, you know, buy a house and a car and that, you know, the crazy stuff that you do. And I called somebody in Atlanta because I read an article that this company had bought a property in Orlando and they were in Atlanta. I cold called the guy and he goes, no, I'm not your buyer, but I'll give you somebody. They're going to call you. I'll pass your information on. So I received a phone call. Hi, this is John Lax. I'm with Blackstone. And I thought, yeah, right. Sure. Um, we heard about your property in Miami Lakes. Uh, can we go down there on Tuesday to see it? This is Thursday. I'm like, sure. Very mechanical, very structured in the way they do the transaction. What I didn't know is that they were buying a portfolio in Weston and one in Doral, and Miami Lakes was in the middle, so it made sense for them to buy it. Very thorough, very number-oriented. Um, some of the other REITs that we've sold stuff to are not as detailed in that. Um, I would tell you the last three years, um, post-COVID and right before, there was a lot of speculative buying where you would see them run the numbers and make assumptions that I would not, but they're, if they're buying my property and they wanna make that assumption, good for them. But it's kind of slowed down a little where now everybody's kind of really, again, hammering down their numbers. How is it at the end to work with them? They're, man, the, the people that they send are, are the rather young ones. And most of these institutions by the time it gets up to the senior level, they've already done so much analysis and these giant thick packages that if you make it to that point, you're almost guaranteed that you're gonna get a sale. Do they tend to try to renegotiate the deal further down the road? So it, the, the real only renegotiations that I've, that I've seen, and we're pretty clear, the, this is the number and, and it is, is if you find something structural or there's something in the deal of, you know, the roof, we had, a, we had somebody tr retrade us at the, at the very end because their roofing number came in way more than what they thought originally. And I had told them what it was gonna be and I was right and they were wrong. So they came back and they retraded some for that, but they were paying so much money that, you know, you just go whatever. And you give give them a discount as long as they, they're gonna close next week. You know, I'm always amazed at your brain. You know, the the your your capacity for recall. You're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> not true, not true. Your capacity for recall is incredible and the way that you absorb and process information. So, you know, um, you know, we got a lot of young commercial agents listening. So how do you Tell, tell us about your process of what, what is it that you read every day? How do you keep up with all, all, everything that's happening in your sector, in your Miami market, and in the economy at large? I read everything, pretty much. South Florida Business Journal, Real Deal, um, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, um, Washington Post, Daily Business Review, South Florida Business Journal already said, Daily Business Review, just about everything. Now, when I say read, I don't necessarily read like people that sit there and read the entire thing, cover to cover, whatever. I'll skim through and find things that are interests or related to my to our business and, you know, read those and then read all the, the news stories. Um, but it's a lot. And I tell people from when they get in, you have to read Instagram isn't going to help you learn anything. You need to actually read 
you know, the builder magazines, the, the real estate magazines, you have to be able to get an understanding from of everything that's happening. I, I'm very lucky because since I was young, I would retain all this useless information. Um, my mother, when I was young, would bring Newsweek and Time Magazine home and I would read those and, and retain, you know, I'm really good at Jeopardy, retain all this useless information and it works for my brain for for real estate you know everybody knows that guy that can tell you in 1978 um the the batting title in in the american league went to <coughs> cal ripton ripkin jr i have no idea but i can do i i retain the stupid stuff like that for real estate and as you mentioned before born and raised here it's really important because if you remember what was there three tenants ago or what was there before they tore it down or, or where you can go, it's really helpful in making analysis of um, acquisition and or leasing. Do you have photographic memory? No. Damn. Pretty darn close. It's pretty close pretty to darn it. close. <laughs> no, not even, not even close. And I'm colorblind, so there would be a black and white photograph. <laughs> He's colorblind, but he bleeds orange and green. Yes, absolutely. I love it. <laughs> So I've got to I've got to ask you about that crocodile painting because we both commented on it. He's got this beautiful crocodile painting behind him. Um, tell us a little bit about that. It's very Miami. It is very Miami. Um, that's there. Those are um, oh my God! What National Geographic? They they did a series of endangered species, and that's the one that I have. They they have all sorts of stuff. I also have. On all my walls, I have Andy Warhol. Um, in, he did also a series of endangered species where he did an elephant, a tiger, a zebra, all these animals, and I have them all all over the place. No commercial real estate agents up there in the endangered species list, um, right? No. Contrary no, there, to you know, what people there's say. A frog, there's a frog that I could um, put a couple of names on him. And tell us a little bit. I know that you obviously have a lot of industrial knowledge and you know just about everybody in the industry. But I also know that you're amazing at sitting at the bar with a glass of wine and networking. Tell us a little bit about your networking and your community service with uh, UM, your involvement, who else you network with. Networking is extremely important uh, you know, to meet and networking with, with your peers and people that are that are in your business i tell that to to the ypns and i stress that every time when from a board capacity miami association when we're going to have events i always try to stress that it's great to have 22 speakers where you're sitting in your chair for 14 hours but when you get 800 people in a room the greater benefit to everybody is to meet each other yes you can learn what's being taught and you can get the the stuff that that they're doing but you can do that in a much shorter time span i think um particularly commercial real estate agents have a short attention span and and a good capacity to understand stuff that's of importance to them networking is is you know one of the keys and it's helped me immeasurably and you know also the benefit of having grown up here and and been in this business so long that I've I have a lot of friends that started with me in their careers that are now um, the ones that are not in jail are either senior you know senior <laughs> bankers lenders and and in, in corporations and and that's also important but that's part of your networking that you start 
my involvement, obviously, with the board. You know, I'm chairman-elect. And Inez may not come back from her vacation, so I may have to take over sooner. <laughs> I know. I saw. I'm going to go join her. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Inez Segares Garcia. She's the 2023 chairman of the board for the Miami Association. Currently in the avocados, socializing with the <laughs> water swimming pig. <laughs> I think it was chasing her, going, "Come here, come here." <laughs> she probably had a mojito he wanted. My involvement at University of Miami, I'm on the Citizens Board, which is the cheaper version of the Board of Trustees. You don't get asked to pay to donate millions of dollars, but you have pretty good com involvement with stuff that's happening. I'm beyond crazy. It's a borderline stupid um, football fan. Uh, someday I'll learn, um, but I haven't, haven't learned yet. We signed like some high school kid yesterday and I was like all excited uh, you know um, <laughs> so now you're gonna have to figure out way that, where they build their stadium so you can buy a multi-family to park some cars you know what I think for the very long-term future it's staying it's staying where it is the tropical park would have been perfect when it was offered a few years ago right now it's not it's not in the works and um, it would be great because I could pretty much now walk and later on i'll buy one of those uh golf carts yeah, scooters. No, scooter. <laughs> you can fall off of the scooter <laughs> you can fall off of the scooter, I the scooter three -wheel will scooter. have railings on it so that i can't fall off to the sides <laughs> so gus uh, a couple of a couple of you know um kind of final questions here but wait wait one other, one other quick thing you asked me about involvement for many, many years, and Jennifer knows I was involved very heavily in the, with the city of Coral Gables for their entire business improvement district, then, and we helped push through all the, um, the sidewalk improvements, all the redevelopment of Miracle Mile and Geralda. That was 16 years of banging my head against a governmental wall to get that done. But it's done now, and I think after you know the four or five years that it's been finished, you're really, really starting to see a benefit with all the restaurants and night night life and activity that you're getting into downtown Coral Gables. And I use that as an example with other municipalities that are struggling with what to do and how to figure out. And nobody wanted to be the next South Beach and, and South Beach is their own stuff and Wynwood is their own stuff, but you can still have a, a downtown area thriving and surviving if you do it intelligently and the community engagement that that whole area brought i mean it really yeah. did revitalize it you know there's activity there all the time so yeah. kudos and thank you for all the work 16 years oof you got the patience of a saint you can't sit for more than 15 minutes to listen to something but you can bang your head against a wall for 16 years that's impressive and i was the president of that board three different times it's like I, you wouldn't learn, right? I'm like, ah, okay. It's going to serve so, you well a next year. for punishment. <laughs> yes, it's going to be to our benefit. <laughs> yep. So go ahead. What was your question, Fernando? <laughs> he forgot. No. no, yes, I did, but I just remembered. Uh, first of all, let me just clarify something. The batting title in 1978 for the American League was uh, Jim Rice, who also won the MVP. Oh, Jim Rice, for the, he was with the Red Sox. He Are was with kidding? the Red Sox. I did. R Ron Godry uh, won uh, as the Cy Young. Gidry. Ron Gidry won the Cy Young, and he pitched for the Yankees. That's correct. Yeah, I do know stupid information. You, you know a little thing. There you go. <laughs> 
I, I don't know if you're much of a, a person that looks, you know, five years down the line, 10 years down the line where you're looking at your investments and development, but how do you see our, our, our market on the industrial side in, in South Florida? You know, what, what are you seeing as, as obstacles and opportunities? Across, across the board with the exception of office buildings, because I really don't track that in my brain. Industrial right now, we're still, when you do the statistics, per square foot needed per person in the, your market, we are so behind compared to cities like New York, New Jersey, Chicago, um, Los Angeles, which are the main port areas. We're, we're so behind on that and we're kind of out of land to do that. And even with Live Local, that now you can build apartments on industrial land at a higher density, we may lose some. In my five and 10 year, I don't really go past 10 year because I'm hoping that in 10 years, my ass is, you know, I don't know, on an island or <laughs> probably in Tuscany somewhere. Um, I'm sorry, my tail. It's okay, it's okay, you're good, you're good. You're good. But this, the, the sheer demand that you're seeing down here for multifamily for um, industrial retail, it's picked up again. But in my world, the industrial world, the sheer demand that you have is crazy. There is much more availability now. There was a period maybe three years ago, two and a half years ago, before um, COVID and you couldn't find a 100,000 square foot industrial building. Right now there is, but it's minimal. There's more 30 and 40,000 square foot uh, spaces available, but there's just too much demand. Where you're getting vacancy is because, you know, for example, Blackstone bought PS Business Parks, the entire company nationwide, and by virtue of that, they own Miami International Commerce Center, which is the real first industrial development built West Airport in that now Doral area. Those are 1980s type warehouses, older less functional. They made a determination that as your lease was up, they were gonna rent all those warehouses at $25 a square foot, irrespective of whether your lease was at $15. So you're getting vacancies when people do that. Those guys are moving somewhere else and or staying and, and paying. Those are smaller examples where you're gonna get bubbles of vacancy, which eventually get get absorbed. The craziest I've seen every year gets gets a little crazier by virtue of how I am, I'm always looking at the the bad side and, and saying, okay, where can it go wrong? Where, having seen that already several times in my career, in our market, this is truly the first time in my career that you have so many people moving into South Florida at all levels of income. And that's that's huge. That I think will prevent us, even if there's other effects in the market, you know, interest rates or, you know, inflation is already getting under control. But if governmental, political, I think just that sheer volume will keep our market performing at where, where it is, hopefully past the 10-year Gus's work sunset window. So even with the skyrocketing price of insurance, all the other you know items that you mentioned you feel that just because of the fact that we have so much demand such little supply and maybe even a a reduction of that supply because of things like the live local act that you know the the market for industrial i know i'm gonna get please, in trouble for that 
put your phone to mute. <laughs> oh, other than the buzzkill of talking about insurance on a Friday, that to me is the biggest the biggest threat we have to our market. Unfortunately, we are where we are with that, but you're starting to see it. Today, there was an article on insurance in the New York Times talking about Florida. Um, the fact that farmers left our market has kind of perked everybody's ears. Um, in in Tallahassee, and you were, you were with me, Fernando, correct? I that was the, I was the insurance guy. Every time we walked into somebody's office, that was my, hey, what are we going to do about this? And I think back in February, they still didn't understand the full effect or what, what the wave that was coming. And I kept telling them, yes, I'm the, the, the wealthy developer. I'm complaining because I paid too much and you're not going to pay attention to me. But when your constituents start, that's that's where and that's where we are now. You're seeing it on the news every day. There, there's there's stuff and it's bubbling up. I just don't know if um, our government at this point still has the the functionality to address the problem but they they sure as heck better because that's that'll put the brakes on this gravy train of increasing rents um and you're gonna have to start you know as an investor make less money because again you can only pass through uh, a certain amount it dismays me when when the answer or what i hear coming out of tallahassee about farmers moving out is that you know that's just a woke isg company or esg company that that is using Florida as an excuse because they don't want to. They don't want to invest here. No, unfortunately, um, we're our our state government isn't paying attention to what they should to be able to push regulations and or rules. Well, and a lot of the insurance has nothing to do with where they are. Farmers is also pulling out of California because of the wildfires. So I think it's just. It's a global issue, right? Insurance is, and we've talked about this before in yeah. another episode about how what happens over in okay. Europe or the Middle East insurance-wise also affects us over here. So I think that whole system needs to be looked at. But One last thing on insurance, understand that the insurance company, I'm running out of time, the insurance companies are going to start coming out looking for a governmental backstop for major catastrophes like hurricanes. And this strategy of pulling out of Florida and California and putting pressure isn't, you know, because California is Democratic, Florida is Republican, so it doesn't have to do with that. But it's it's going to be an industry push that's going to come out asking the federal government to backstop their losses so that going in, they know how much money they're going to make. We've been through this and we've looked at it from so many different you know, perspectives. The spreading out of that, you know, of that risk, even globally, is still not enough for the insurance companies to stay here in Florida and, and places like California, to your point. One of the things that Jennifer and I have bonded over is our frustration over the lack of transparency that exists sometimes in our industry as commercial real estate brokers and agents. I do you know, genuinely feel that you are uh, a great mentor to so many people because you are always open to have conversations about commercial real estate. You know, where does that approach come from? And more importantly, as an industry, especially in the commercial sector, we skew more older. It's very hard for a young person to break into commercial real estate. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts as to how we can make that a better experience. It's extremely important to you know put some time aside and teach when you're asked, because if the younger people, the people that are starting in our business, but not necessarily younger, but anybody, if they can't learn things at least 
somewhat correctly, it's just going to increase the frustration that we have, and it's going to really make it difficult to transact. Um, I'm a big fan of our board having the YPNs because they're that's that's the perfect age. You know, when the little bird is born, that it imprints. That's the perfect age to get these people to imprint with um, correct business practices you have to you have to give your time although i will tell you i was at the the ypm meeting this week and there was a comment that they needed instructors that were less old white men um and then they immediately all looked at me (laughs) but that's understandable the problem is that there's not you know this is what somebody that's going to teach them about real estate commercial real estate doing it correctly looks like so you just have to tailor the message as well. You, you, 10 seconds or less with the young kids. They have a shorter attention span than you do. No, oh, it's they stand there on the phone. <laughs> That's you true. Know? They're multitasking, uh, guys. They're multitasking. They're multitasking. <laughs> yep. I would love nothing more than to see Gus walk into a meeting with a t-shirt that says 10 seconds or less, guys. That's all I could give you. <laughs> 10 second Gus, that's what you're calling him. All righty, right, Gus, we did give you a heads up about stats, right? That there's yeah. a fun fact that we mm-hmm. do at the end of every episode. Yeah. So as our guest, we'll let you go first. Okay, Jim Rice won the American <laughs> League $1.4 billion of Italian red wine imported into the United States in 2022. Wow. Repeat that, one point four nine. $1.4 billion, of which 20% went to my house. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately... I've seen it. I've seen it. I love that when stat. It, incidentally, since I have you on the line... When is that bottle of wine that I uh, that I gave you going to be ready to be opened? Um, it, it should be ready. I think it was a 15 or a 16. Yeah. It's, it's ready. <laughs> so mine, since we're talking about industrial, and I think it's appropriate given what you said about how little we have built up in the National Association of Realtors commercial update for the first quarter of 2021, uh, sorry, 2023. First quarter, the vacancy rate for industrial was 1.9%. Um, down from 2.7% in Q1 2022, and market rents were up 19 to $19 a square foot. Um, I don't know where, because that seems low for most of the places that I've been looking at, but $19 a square foot up from 16 in Q1 2022. What do you think it's going to look like for the second quarter? Do you think we're going to be in line? Yeah, we'll be in line. Uh, maybe, I, I don't think the... The vacancy may take up if they if they consider some of the new projects that have, have come online. And we mentioned Blackstone. Blackstone's on a mandate to build out everything that they bought, all the land, and they've they've got a lot of land, so they've they've got about a million some square feet coming in. Um, you have bridge building monsters in Doral and monsters up on uh, by the Turnpike North. Um, if you add those in, you may get a blip in up in in vacancy, but I can still tell you there are pockets in Hialeah where the vacancy is negative. And what I mean by that is if you're empty on Friday, you'll be full on Monday. Um, it's it's still pretty, all within reason. If the market is $15 and you want $20, then, you know, you're going to you're gonna sit vacant. But if you're renting within, within market parameters, the demand is still there. 
Yeah, the inventory that we had was only up slightly in Q1 of 2023. It was up at 260, almost 263 million square feet, up from 259 million square feet. But I know, so it was a minor blip, but projects, some big ones are coming down. Right but their rents um, are also significantly higher, so we'll probably see an increase in vacancy, um, an increase in vacancy, but at the same time see an increase in the per square foot price correct no i agree absolutely we haven't reduced we haven't had to reduce rents um to anybody uh, in the last i don't know how many years i'm going to tell you that sales of rental housing for college students hit a record high 22.9 billion dollars in 2022 so that's my uh, that's my stat of the day, and just like twenty percent of all the wine is going to uh, you know Gus's house, he he can account for a good percentage of that twenty two point six billion. <laughs> still, still, still funding a, a project in New York. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much, Gus. It's always know, fun. Gus. My ribs hurt from laughing. I know because you're you're smart, but you're funny, and your delivery you. is. Uh, I think it's so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> I know, guys. To take because your delivery is amazing. This is and so much fun. You know, we love you. Absolutely. And thank All you right, for guys. taking your time on a Friday. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. I think next time, if we if we do this again and you become our repeat guest, we're going to have to do it in, you know, maybe the backyard of your house over a, a glass of wine. That That's the only way no. to make it better. I think this this works perfect at the bar across the street. <laughs> I, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, with this heat, the backyard's useless. <laughs> All right, guys. All right, guys. Have a great weekend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bye. 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 Bye.